Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of Tailoring in Conversation. In this series, I'll be talking to tailors from all around the globe to gain a better insight into their worlds. My guest for today is Sibilla Carini. Sibilla is a bespoke tailor from San Francisco who's currently working in Rome. You may know her from her online tailoring courses made in collaboration with whatbellamade.com. We're going to talk about her journey into tailoring, creativity, innovation, the challenges these things bring into the tailoring industry and tailoring companies, and more. So please join us in this conversation, and I hope you enjoy. Sibi, thank you so much for, for making the time and being with us today. Uh, I have tons of questions to ask you, uh, as you're one of the most uh, active people in the, in the fields of online teaching. And, uh, and, and, you know, following your work, you, you seem to, to, uh, to have a good amount of passion, I would say, for the basics and, and to you know, get things constructive, you know, and, and technically correct. So, um, first of all, thank you. And uh, how are you today is, is probably the best thing to start with. I'm doing really well. Um, I'm getting through the end of my summer workshop. So yeah. um, just got a couple weeks left and then vacation, which I'm really looking forward to. So a much needed vacation. I've been hustling a lot this year. 2021 has been really fantastic in a lot of ways, but also definitely a hustle. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm ready for that, for that break. Right. Now, one, one thing I don't know about you exactly, uh, uh, which, which we have to work out or you have to just explain it to us. Um, you are in Rome at the moment, but you are also yeah. in America from time to time and you've also been in London. Now, what is, where is what and what is where exactly? Totally. Um, this, is, this question I get asked in social settings, in professional settings, and it's like, you kind of just have to figure out what your answer is going to be, whether that's like (laughs) actually the truth or not. But the reality is that I come from San Francisco. I was born in Rome, but Mm -hmm. I was raised in America. Um, I spent most of my life in San Francisco. um, And I started my multiple careers. I started those in San Francisco. And then I basically decided, um, I'm destined to become a bespoke tailor. Uh, I need to go get trained, like officially trained to do this. And I think it, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I maybe realized that a little bit late. Um, But I was like, Europe, that's like has to be my destination. So I bought a one-way ticket to Barcelona because Barcelona was calling me. But I was like, once I'm in Europe, that's like, that's good. Um, I found the Savile Row Academy and enrolled sort of serendipitously enrolled in their summer session because their fall session was already full and then a spot opened up in their fall session. So I ended up just staying in London. Um, So I did one year in London, that's when the pandemic hit. And I basically, without a job, um, had to decide whether I was gonna go back to San Francisco um, for financial support or come to Rome because I have family here as well. So Mm -hmm. I chose Rome. I'm super happy with my decision. I think that that decision really solidifies how serious I am about becoming like a master tailor. Um, Mm -hmm. because going back to San Francisco would have been a little bit more, I would never have the opportunity to train under a master tailor if I had moved back to San Francisco just because they Mm. don't really exist there. Um, I probably would have done something a little bit more like uh, entrepreneurship and probably worked more with in manufacturing, but that's never been something I'm interested in. So um, really happy to be in Rome. I've officially decided to stay here for the time being and I'm meeting tailors um, Mm. and hustling to make some money. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I've, I, I assume that you, you say you grew up in, in America. If, if me and yeah. you were both, both of us, if, if we were 10 years old and we were friends or I would meet you some, you know, at some uh, place or kindergarten or whatever, 
who were you at the time? Who, who would I be meeting? Who would I be talking to? Uh, um, what would my impression of you be? I love this question. Man, at 10 years old, so I was really a shy kid. I was such a shy kid. Um, I think, though, that's what let me um, sort of go into my own world and be really, really creative. So I've mm -hmm. been creative my entire life. I mean, my parents have, like, little shoe boxes of all my creations from when, who knows how far back they, they go. Um, but, you know, paper, glue, scissors, fabric dolls. I made clothes for my dolls when I was a kid. Then I graduated to making clothes for myself, Halloween costumes. I think that, um, I, I mean, growing up, I didn't really realize that sewing could be a career. It was just mm -hmm. sort of like the thing that I did, the thing that made me happy. Um, and yeah, just really like small detail things. Oh man. I remember I had a dollhouse that my dad had given me and I made like the furniture, which is great because I see the the stuff that you do like online and all the, you know, you made your Christmas card. That's like what I was as a kid. That was me as a kid. Um, right. So, so I can relate to that. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I was a really shy kid. And I think it took me a while to sort of like bloom into myself, grow into myself. Mm -hmm. um, very like a very observant kid mm -hmm. and even in high school, very observant um, and a little bit less um, sort of outwardly, you know, right. social. When yeah. you say observant, do you, do you mean observant in like, you know, working something out, seeing how it works, going back and forth or observant as in like social settings, you know, watching people and both everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, the re so I consider myself self-taught, even though I've had trainings and I've been in shops where I've learned a lot from other people, but I do consider mm -hmm. myself still self-taught. And I think that's, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm able to be self-taught because I can literally see someone do something once and like mm -hmm. repeat it. Like exactly. I remember the first time I did a buttonhole, like they literally mm -hmm. just needed to show me like what the stitch was like a buttonhole yeah. by hand. And like my first buttonhole was, they were like, wow, this is like, this is like basically perfect, you know? Mm -hmm. um, also it helps to be a perfectionist. That also helps. But um, yeah, so I, and, and of course, socially, yes. And I continue to be socially. Um, there are moments when being the person on the sidelines watching yeah. in is beneficial and, um, and actually gets you further than being the person in the middle talking mm -hmm. everyone mm -hmm. up or talking themselves up. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So, but you have to value both of course, because yes. you're not going to get anywhere if you stay the person in the corner and not saying anything. Right. Yes, exactly. And you know, you, you kind of like, I guess you're flexible as well. So you assess what situation you're in, you know, is this the best time to just be silent, observe, learn, see what's uh, happening, you know, or is it now time for some action? I mean, uh, the impression that I get, you know, seeing your work, you know, on, on social media, you seem to be a very active person and, and, and thoughtful in what you do and also quite social. So you, you're not just in a bubble posting stuff, but you're also collaborating with people. And so and I think that's yes. uh, that's a very valuable thing. Now, where where did this whole need for for being creative come from? Is it is it an internal thing? Is it an external thing? Uh did you did you just copy the people around you or was it just like hey man i'm just weird you know in a good way uh i just have to fix some things and get some things together and just break them and, and twist them and bend them to see uh what they're gonna do that's a really good question ah well i i think that i do get a lot of it from my parents um mm -hmm. because surprisingly even though they're very intellectual and they're both teachers and they have their heads in their books all the time. Um, they're actually also extremely creative. Um, they're creative within the context of their work. So they're very creative teachers. Um, 
I went to a Waldorf school, Steiner school, which is also very um, hands-on, creative, a little, a little bit like Montessori um, in the sense that it's very alternative, um, but originates in Germany with like a philosophy that is very much um, hands-on, creative um, sort of examples of mm-hmm. or of intellectual concepts will basically help us understand those intellectual contexts that can be very abstract mm-hmm. when you're just sort of talking about them. Right. And, and it's interesting because my dad's a physicist and physics is notoriously all about being abstract. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, of course there's concrete examples, but a lot of times you have to sort of imagine a, an experiment being expanded to like, you know, uh, a macro level or a micro level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that we can't actually observe directly, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, my dad's like one of the most creative people I know, and he um, always try. He, I think that he sort of just trained my brain to think outside the box, mm-hmm. um, and. And, you know, they dabbled in a little, a little fine arts. My mom does some painting and my dad did some sculpture, some painting, creative writing. They're, Mm -hmm. they're both very creative. And I think that they handed that down to both me and my brother. My brother is an architect. Um, And we've always, we've also always been, my brother and I, very much hands-on people. So we're like, mm-hmm. we're not going to study forever. We're not going to live a world. We're not going to live a life where we're living in an abstract world. We want like mm-hmm. concrete um, things that we can see that we've done, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, a good example, like I worked um, one of my, the beginning of my sort of careers out of college was uh, in the film industry. And mm-hmm. I lived in New York and I worked on t- in TV and I was a production assistant in the costume department and, you know, in the field that I wanted to be in working in costumes, which was sort of where I was at at that point in my life. Um, and my job was to return clothes every single day I just like had bags full of clothes that weren't used by the production and I had to return them. So I drove around Manhattan returning clothes and which is part of the, you know, the nuts and bolts of a production Mm -hmm. and you're helping the production function. And it's, you know, you feel like part of the team, but at the end of the day, I would go home and be like, what, what is the material progress that I've made today? Like, what do I have to show for my day? You know, Um, and I just wasn't satisfied not having something like tangible to show for my day. So Mm -hmm. I just, I was like, you know what? Screw this. I left the film industry. Basically I went to work in a costume shop for making Broadway costumes and I was immediately way happier. I was like, even if like all I'm doing all day is like flatlining, you know, set eight of the exact same dresses like I'm way happier than like being a part of a, you know, the wheel in the cog system, the cog in the, mm-hmm. in the whole machine that is the mm-hmm. film industry. Um, yeah. Does, uh, does any, uh, I mean, how would I say this? Does any of the, if you and your dad would be talking tailoring. Yeah. Has he said anything to you or shown you things, you know, about his profession that you could immediately take on board and be like, that's something I can take on board and adapt on this level, on that level, on this field and that field. Did you ever get like a technical fight with your dad about tailoring and he'd be like, hey, man, what the hell are you talking about? That's not how materials work. Oh, totally. Oh, totally. I mean, my dad also being my father, right, wants to like help me fix all my problems, whether they're professional or personal, right? And Mm. uh, sometimes when I talk to him about sort of professional struggles, and he comes up with some sort of solution, 
I'm like, you really have no idea. Like this industry is not even close to anything you understand. Um, and so, yeah, we've had like, we have, we've had had some interactions like that, but I would say there is a lot of what I, I think it's not what I do. I think it's the way that I approach tailoring and the mm -hmm. way that I love tailoring is very similar to honestly to physics. I mean, I mm -hmm. consider myself like becoming a master tailor. I mean, you're getting a master's in tailoring, right? Like no one's officially giving you like a degree, but yeah, like yeah. not even masters. Like we're getting like a P like I'm getting a doctorate in, in tailoring. Just no one's giving me a piece of paper. Right. Or it doesn't really exist. Um, but ultimately like one of my favorite things, you know, coming from costuming also is I love cutting. I love cutting. Mm -hmm. Like I love fitting. I love cutting. I think that uh, sculpting, you know, a two-dimensional piece of cloth into three dimensions is like, that's the coolest part. That is the coolest part of like, of what I do and, and making it fit all different sorts of body types and understanding different body types. It's mm -hmm. sort of like, I mean, like Leonardo da Vinci, right? Was like, he was a Renaissance man. He researched everything under the sun. He was like obsessed with the human body, the muscles. He was also obsessed with like mechanics and like how like mechanics works. He was also an artist. Like I can relate to that completely. Um, and I think that I get that sort of, I think that I get that obsession from my dad. My dad is a mm -hmm. bit of a Renaissance man. Um, I have to say directly, what he gives me directly that helps me every day is perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Two, with its faults, with its flaws, pros and cons, right? Mm -hmm. um, but he gives me perfectionism, um, the kind of perfectionism that will drive you crazy and the kind of mm -hmm. perfectionism that brings you really far, especially in tailoring, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, we can go many directions now. You've 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 laid the groundwork of a very thorough conversation. Um, I I would say, um, how? I think you're an outsider. Obviously, you know, you've you've come to London, yes. right? You're 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 not you know grown up in in a in a family of tailors in London or you know. Uh, so, how did you, as an outsider, find the tailoring industry? from the moment that you started up until now, um, what are the things you've observed? What are the things you liked, disliked, or whatsoever? Um, throw some thoughts and we can then uh, pick up on, on them. Yeah, so I'd say that my, my sort of first step into the tailoring industry was in San Francisco. Um, I worked for a company called Isaia. It's an Italian, it's a Neapolitan based company. Um, it's a branded company. Their factories are in Italy, um, but it is factory made, right? Uh, with hand finishing. It's kind of like Keton. Um, they're sort of like brothers, right? Um, not literally, but um, figuratively, they're both from Naples. They do a similar Neapolitan jacket. Um, and so that was like my first introduction to the world of tailoring, what I would call the world of tailoring. Before that, it was the world of costuming. Um, I did, I did onset tailoring, which is not real tailoring. Um, I was in basically corporate, the corporate world, um, as a tailor. Um, as an alterations tailor. And I joined the team at East, the San Francisco team at Isaia. Um, I was sent to Italy to train, meet their master tailor at their factory, see how the factory runs, how they run their, their copy store, um, get a feel for the brand. And, um, and then go back to San Francisco and bring it back with me, essentially. Um, and 
Um, it was an amazing experience. I'm really, really grateful to have sort of had that experience because I think it solidified that that's the world I want to be in. Um, but I'm what not going to say it wasn't. What made you think and confirm uh, that? What What made you think it's specifically this that uh, I could look at and, and confirm that this is the route I want to take? Because you know, when you're starting out, you're just yeah. you're you're kind of like you you don't know exactly where you are, where you're going. You're kind of like just floating in a in a new industry. Uh, what what made it stick? Let's say. Yeah. I mean, the fact that I, for, you know, a year and a half, was able to essentially do alterations, which mm -hmm. everyone knows is not the most pleasant job, um, you know, mostly lengthening and shortening sleeve cuffs and putting buttonholes in, right? Because that's what was needed on every single jacket guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Um So the fact that I was able to do that and enjoy it, um, I think was really fantastic. I think also um, I was the head tailor of the shop. Um, and so I was able to create the, the environment that I thought was the most uh, sort of conducive to a productive workday. Um, and having a slow paced um Workday, I think, made us very productive um, and was we were able to provide a really, really high quality, um, really high quality work, which mm -hmm. gave me pleasure like that really like it fulfilled my day, even though at the end of the day, what are you doing? You're just lengthening and shortening sleeves and putting but right. It's not like you're not saving lives. You're not changing anyone's day. You're not, you know, um, but um, I was really just. I found a lot of satisfaction in that. And then there was the part that was not as prominent in my job, but my interactions with the clientele were mm -hmm. equally fulfilling, if not even more so. I realized in a, in a retail world where sales associates you know, they get commission. They literally, their like their livelihood is based on selling. Right. Yeah. Um, and they will do anything under the sun to sell their product. Right. Which as a tailor was, is very difficult for me. Um, I'm, I do consider myself a businesswoman, but I consider myself very honest. Um, and if something mm -hmm. doesn't look good on you, I'll tell you, and I'll, and I'll risk not making the $3,000, right? Mm -hmm. um, so to me, like the most important thing is relationship with your clients, trust that's created, um, uh, honesty. Uh, you want them to really like, you want them to really be able to trust that you're not just going to sell them anything. You're going to mm -hmm. sell them what makes them look good, what makes them feel good. Um, and I think that that's honestly why bespoke tailoring still exists, right? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, you know, China's doing pretty well, Philippines, like you can get a suit that's like, even like made to measure now is, has gone pretty far. Um, but none of them have the clients, the client services um, and mm -hmm. the experience of trusting your tailor, which is, um, invaluable totally invaluable mm -hmm. and amazing and super cool mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so i had that experience at isaiah and that was really like i this is what i want to do you know like yes i love making i love working with my hands um i cutting is like my heart and soul um but working with the clients is also a super important part for me mm -hmm. um and You know, I realized that working at Isaiah was a little bit restrictive for my dreams. So I ended up leaving. I did sort of a quick stint back in the corporate industry to make some money before taking off. Um, and 
but yeah, I think that working at Isaiah made me realize like I have to get trained, you know? I mean, I was about to start my own tailor shop, right? Like a uh, utopian dream that like, you know, with no, with no experience, self-trained, self-taught that I could start my own tailoring company. And maybe I could have in San Francisco because you can sort of, you know, you sell, you sell yourself. But like I said, I'm not good at, I'm not good at being fake. I'm not good at selling a product I'm not 100% confident in, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, no, I I need to get training. I thought that I had enough um, cutting experience from my costuming background um, that I only needed to fill in the actual tailoring, the art of tailoring part. Um, so I actually... I'm like a little bit embarrassed to say it, but I actually bought Andrew's DVDs, the Savile Row Academy right. DVDs. Yeah. Um, which look, I'm happy that I have them. Um, also the fact that they're not digital kind of cracks me up. They're literally like DVDs in San Francisco. They're like not even with me. Um, but I sat down with these DVDs and I started to study. Like I took notes And I was like, my plan was to make a jacket following the DVDs. And like, I got through the entire course, which is basically just a jacket, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, the way he, the way he does it, it's like completely by hand. It's like the most, the most artisanal bespoke jacket that could possibly, like he literally stitches all his scenes by hand. Um, which Mm -hmm. is barely done anymore, even on Savile Row. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I got to the end and I was like, okay, now I'm going to like make a jacket. And I go to, and I'm like, okay, I need a pattern. I'm like, okay, well, I mean, I can can pattern a jacket, right? So I like open a couple books. I like get going and I'm like, oh my God, there's no way. There's no way I'm going to go through the process, how many hours it's going to take me as like essentially a beginner bespoke tailor. Um, like I'm not going to put that many hours into something that's not, the pattern is not, is not spot on. There's just no way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided I had to enroll in a cutting course and I started looking and I was I was already in my late twenties, not really a time when you can like go back to school or go to, you know, there's all these places in Italy that are connected to actual brands, you know, uh, Zenia. I mean, they all have their schools. Their schools are three years long. They're full time. You end up going from the school, you get hired by the company. And I was like, I'm not planning on like, I'm not planning on doing that. That's not like, I'm not, I'm too old to do that. And I'm not, that's not something I want to do. Um, I don't, I w- wasn't even planning on moving to Europe for three years. You know, I mean, now mm-hmm. it turns out I am going to be here, but um, still I was like, I have, I also felt like I had to value the experience that I have. Um, I don't want to just throw away, you know, now 10 years of, of career, right? Just because it wasn't on Savile Row or Mm -hmm. in a tailor shop in Italy, right? It doesn't mean it's not valuable. I mean, there's so many things that I have become an expert at within the costuming world that I carry into this industry, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And actually maybe a unique perspective. So, um, Yeah. So then basically I enrolled in the Savile Row Academy summer course, which was specifically, uh, cutting. It was a cutting Mm -hmm. course. Um, it was amazing. I learned exactly what I needed to learn. Um, probably could have come out of that and started at the bottom of the ladder, um, Mm -hmm. as an apprentice somewhere. Um, I probably would have struggled um, because I hadn't actually made a a bespoke jacket um, start Mm -hmm. to finish yet. So even on Savile Row, I mean, 
they probably would have looked at me kind of like I was crazy. Like you want to be an apprentice? Like you literally have no experience. Even though, again, I'm like, I had seven years of, of experience, just not specifically in that industry. Um, so I decided to take the full year course, um, which was a huge investment, huge investment. And sometimes I'm like, did I make the right decision? Especially with the pandemic, you know, I mean, I think it's been the hardest on people who come out of school into Mm -hmm. now the, the pandemic, um, world where it's just harder to find a job, especially in Mm -hmm. tailoring. Um, mm-hmm. it's harder to find someone who wants to give you a chance. It's always an investment, always. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter mm-hmm. how experienced you are, the, the shop is investing in you. They are investing time. They are, which is money, um, to train you at the very least to do things the way they do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've basically always been an independent contractor. I've always Mm -hmm. been, you know, the person that hires. Um, so I understand that. Um, Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not easy, especially if you've got someone in front of you who might not be around forever, you know, like, Mm -hmm. of course the person you want to invest in is someone who's literally going to grow old Mm -hmm. working for you. Right. Um, But that's not our generation, right? Mm-hmm. So our in- the industry has to figure this out now because there's a new generation of tailors that are not going to be stuck in the same spot for 60 years. You know, mm-hmm. we're not going to end up being like the old person in the corner doing buttonholes or, you know, finishing or whatever. Um, having been there for like 40 years um Mm -hmm. that's just not really what our generation is made of we want a bigger experience mm -hmm. do you think we that our generation in some way is more entrepreneurial maybe and likes to uh well like you say you know experience more things and be less specialized for like a very long time yes i do which I understand the old school tailors see as a detriment Mm -hmm. because, you know, yes, 30 years. I mean, look, 30 years in the same shop. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much you're learning after 10 years, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. possible that you've learned, you know, almost everything you no, you still learn. You're definitely still learning. Um, I mean, I've been told master tailors are not, it's not like they've reached this like level of master tailor. Even a master tailor is constantly learning new things. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, even if it's just like a new type of cloth that comes out that has different, uh, sort of properties, um, yes. which, you know, there's always new cloth. You, I mean, you can go 10 years without having ever made a, a velvet jacket. Right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which is like a thing in itself. Uh, you can go a really long time without ever having made a tuxedo too. Um, yeah, depending yeah. on where you live, I think in Italy, tuxedos are not very common. So, um, yeah. And depending what shop you're in, even on Savile Row, like you could, you could work at the same shop for years and never have made a tuxedo. Right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so I mean the, the idea that staying at the same place for 40 years is gonna make you, you know, some sort of genius in your field. I, I, I don't buy it. I don't buy Mm -hmm. it. Um, but that being said, I do think that there's something about the patience that you have when that's what that's the choice you've made in your life, right? Yes, you have yeah. a, an extreme amount of patience. I think that your attention to detail is astounding. Um, the fact that you can still learn new things after 40 years being in the same shop is, mm-hmm. is impressive, right? It means you're very keen on, on the details. Um, but I do think, 
our generation is, is pretty yeah. awesome. And I think that okay. we've, yeah. 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 No, that's, I mean, I think our generation, all, I think I'm excited to be part of this generation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah me too same, same here so so let's 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 open a, a a topic here we can do a little bit of brainstorming um one of the interesting things you said and i think uh you know in 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 a lot of cases this is true that in a tailoring shop uh within the tailoring industry a, a traditional bespoke tailoring shop although you are always going to learn something new you know that's like it's almost like a template sentence that you could just apply on it. You know, you're all, you know, every, every day that I go and cook in the kitchen, I'm going to learn something, you know, who does, you know, if you're just like a, an aware person, you know, you even learn things from jokes. But there is a limit. Essentially, what you're saying is there is a limit in how much one can learn and develop and grow in a, in a traditional bespoke tailoring shop. Now, there yeah. could be thousands of reasons. I'd like to, to just pick your thoughts on what you think some of the reasons are. But also, <clears throat> you see, there is this thing that I think about. Like, when someone says, I've been working at this place for 50 years, I think two things, right? M maybe more things, but two things for now. One of them is, you're probably very disciplined that you were able to do that. Uh, well, now I'm going to come up with more things. Or you didn't have a choice, or you're just, you know, you're, you're not that action type of person who wants to jump from level two to level three to level five, you know, and go up your way. Um, yeah. Or you just, you know, like the routine or whatsoever. Now, it's a double-edged sword. It's a bit dangerous. You know, I, when I say, oh, I've been doing this for 50 years, I always feel like, yeah, but what does that 50 years exactly mean? Does it mean like you've been yeah. like Leonardo da Vinci for 50 years or just like, yeah. you know, um, average for 50 years? What do you think, to, yeah. to bring it back, what do you think is some of the reasons that there is limited growth in traditional bespoke tailoring companies? And what do you think companies can do to provide infinite growth opportunities and learning opportunities for who, whoever does want to stay and become a Leonardo da Vinci after 50 years, let's say, right? Yeah. What, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? I mean, I think that what I think shops could do, I think that what our generation is going to do, right? Um, and it might not be the best business plan. I think we have to figure out how to make this uh, lucrative mm -hmm. is really find the value in investing in our employees. Mm -hmm. That's like for me. So what does that look like? That looks like if, you know, if I let you go, not let you go because everyone's free, but like if I, you know, create an environment where I lift up all the other tailor shops around me, right? If we are all, you know, lifting each other up, mm -hmm. providing opportunities for each other, we can have like a, we can, we can exchange sort of experiences that will make us all become better for mm -hmm whatever company we're working for at that time. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I've got a tailor who's worked for three different companies for two years each, I'm more likely to go for, I mean, depending on why it was only two years, right. You always have to ask around, you have to talk. It's always word of mouth. You want good recommendations, but if they've done their best work for three different companies for two years, each company, I know that they've got more experience in general than someone who's been at the same company for six years. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, they have, of course, it depends what exactly I'm looking for. Am I looking mm -hmm. for a machine? Mm -hmm. Am I looking for a 60 year old man who can still freaking make a jacket in his sleep? Right. Is that what my company needs right now? Not someone who is, creative and thinks outside the box, but I literally just need a human machine, mm -hmm. which to me is also just a sad sort of necessity, right? Mm 
I, I don't ever want to need someone to be a human machine. I, w- I would mm-hmm. want them to be whatever they want to be. If they want to be a human machine, if that's what they take pride in, then we, mm-hmm. you know, I'll use them for, for that. Um, but I think that our generation is going to be a little bit more um, collaborative. Um, mm-hmm. So you have to have that skill. You're not going to have that skill. You're probably not going to have that skill if you've worked in the same shop with the same people mm-hmm. for 10 years or more, right? It's going to be mm-hmm. harder for you to be collaborative. Um, mm-hmm. Accept new ideas, accept mm-hmm. other people's experiences, um, be open to, oh, there's this way that I learned it in this place. And be like, oh, let me actually consider whether that's the, a better way of doing it than the way that I've been doing it for 10 years, right? I think mm-hmm. so many old school tailors are like, no, this is like, this is the right way to do it. This is the way I was taught to do it. And I'm, mm-hmm. this is like the right way to do it, period. And mm-hmm. we all know that's not, I mean, that's like the biggest, it's not a lie. That's like the biggest, like, uh, you know honestly detriment to your own you know professional growth in my opinion mm-hmm. because you can put on edge tape in a certain way for the same way for 10 years and turns out there's another guy who has like a way more efficient way of doing it you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you have mm-hmm. to be open to that guy's way being more efficient than yours you know mm-hmm. um I think that there's a lot that the tailoring industry can learn from the hot couture industry. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not explored because of pride, right? Because of tradition. Um, but I think that Paris, Paris is doing things that, you know, the, that Savile Row is like trying to reinvent the wheel because we just have too much pride to just like, go over to Paris and like see how they do it. Right. (laughs) Um, working with lightweight materials. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, we've sure we've mastered tailors have mastered, um, certain, a certain part of making. Right. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. the more bespoke you get, the more clients want things that are outside the box, you know? Yeah. Weird shoulders, weird sleeves, you know, ruffles mm-hmm. in weird places. Like, who knows what they want, you know? And they want it on a jacket. Mm-hmm. And and I'm, you know, the more women get into tailoring, the more, like, female clients want to wear jackets, the more mm-hmm. tailors are going to have to accept these things, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. A woman isn't always going to want the most traditional-looking jacket. Um and I think that might be part of the fear that the tailoring industry has with female clients, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh my God, what are they going to ask me now? Like, yeah, we're bespoke, but like not that kind of bespoke, you know? <laughs> um, and they're like, uh, no, you're bespoke, you know, like bespoke <laughs> is you make you whatever I want, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah so yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if that sort of that answered no, your question, but yeah, and I, what I would also ask is, is what do you think are some of the reasons that, at the moment, I mean, apart from from Taylor's thinking that you know this is the way I've been doing this for fifty years or whatsoever, what do you think are the things that stop the the industry as a whole? Because, you know, one, something you said in the beginning of the, of the conversation was, you know, I was sitting there lengthening sleeves, shortening sleeves. I wasn't saving lives. I wasn't like, you know, bringing us to another planet or whatsoever. So yeah. with, without, without undermining the work that we do as tailors, eventually it's a luxury mm-hmm. and it depends on how you look at it. It's not like something spectacular that the humankind needs, you know, you can do with with average, you know. Uh, So do you think that there is something intrinsically about tailoring that just has its limits? Or do you think it's more the way the people are doing it that creates the limits? 
uh, and, and makes the shops kind of like, yeah, you know, after 10 years, you probably have outgrown the company. I think before 10 years, you've outgrown the company. <laughs> even worse, even worse. As an, empl as an employee, I mean, I think I outgrow a company. It depends how much they allow me to grow, you know. I mean, if you want me to cut trimmings for a year, mm -hmm. I don't even know if I can get through that year. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I can learn how to cut trimmings, you know, in a month. I don't yeah. need more than that, you know. So I feel like um, the way for a company to grow is for each one of its employees to be constantly growing mm -hmm. to the extent that they feel like they need. Right. Like you mm -hmm. said, some people are really just satisfied, you know, slowly making their way towards becoming a trouser maker. Right. Um, and, and they like the routine, the daily routine. Um, they like, you know, making the same pocket every single day. Um, they, they take, they find pleasure in just the fact that it's different cloth. Right. Um, mm -hmm. or maybe not even that they just, they really, and maybe, and a lot of people like the security of, mm -hmm. um, just knowing exactly what you're going to do every day. You don't have to overthink things. There's a process to it. And I have to say, I mean, there's definitely a lot of pleasure in that, you know, when you know yes. exactly and, and you can get through it, like, you know, all your trimmings for your pockets, like, you know, you can I literally cut it all out in five minutes. Right. I kind of miss that too. Um, and I feel like in, you know, in a, in a shop, that's where you get that experience. And that experience mm -hmm. is also invaluable. Right. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and I feel like I haven't had that experience enough. I've had so many entrepreneurial experiences, you know, mm -hmm. um, which are also super invaluable and, um, make me into the tailor that I am. But I know that there's spots, you know, where, yeah, sure, a little bit of discipline would go a long way or have gone a long way. You know, at my age now, I'm not sure mm -hmm. if I would be, how willing I would be to cut out trimmings for a tailor for a couple months. I would probably feel like I was wasting my life. Um mm -hmm. But depending on what I want to do, maybe that is an experience that I still need to have. Maybe I just need mm -hmm. to buckle down and have it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, I didn't grow up in an environment where I could have that at a younger age, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I do think that it's important. It's crucial for a company that wants to grow to constantly be allowing their employees to grow. Um, and I think the thing that turns me off the most about a tailor shop or a mentor is someone who wants to keep me back, mm -hmm. like on principle, right? Mm -hmm. On principle, because this industry has always valued, you know, I want you to cut trimmings for a year, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um I want you to cut trimmings and I just want you to watch me work for a year. And I don't want you to like pick up a scissor. Like you can't touch a pair. You can't touch scissors. Don't even think about like using a needle and thread, but like for a year, you're literally just going to like watch me work. Okay. Mm -hmm. As someone who's an observational learner, that to me is just like, I, I watch you work whether I'm working or not. Like yeah. you can tell me to do something more and I'm still going to also watch you work and learn from you. Right. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I don't think that holding people back, uh, you know, reining them in, you know, mm -hmm. is necessarily, it's not going to make the company grow. It's just not, mm -hmm. um, it will turn, employees into a part of the machine yeah. yes will they be happy depends on the person mm -hmm. you know if you've got a bunch of nuts and bolts and they're all doing their job and they enjoy their job that's great right then the machine works but um if you've got 
you know, if you want creativity, if you want to stay um, contemporary, mm-hmm. if you want to be able to provide clients with creative solutions, creative processes, creative creativity in general, um, I don't think complacency is it is not going to complacency does not harbor creativity. It just yes. doesn't. We all know like creative people are kind of crazy, uh, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, maybe a little manic, um, you know, mm-hmm. a, maybe a little bit all over the place and need to be reined in, in that sense. Right. Like people's mm-hmm. creativity needs to be mm-hmm. reined in so that it yeah. can be productive. Mm-hmm. Um, but not productivity, you know, mm-hmm. being creative mm-hmm inspires you to be productive right Mm -hmm. so the less creative you allow me to be in your shop the less productive i'm gonna be you know Mm -hmm. i'm gonna i'm just gonna at some point i'm gonna get bored and i'm gonna leave and you're gonna have invested in you know not as much as if you keep investing in me and my creativity you know i'm gonna be way more productive for you Mm -hmm. um yeah, it'll benefit the okay. company. Oh. Let, let's let's do a a a, um, a simple kind of like a, let's 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 make a sketch, right? Uh, yeah, because because I think you know we're kind of like having a good flow here with the conversation. Um, let's take a, a hypothetical tailoring company with like five yeah. employees, right? And the only thing this company does is create business suits blue jacket and trousers that's it just to just to make it simple right five employees and the clientele is kind of like you know they have like a good you know workflow maybe they have like uh let's keep it simple again five orders per month you know that they have to deliver you know five employees Mm -hmm. that's you know perfectly possible Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now for a company that has five employees and only makes blue business suits, jacket and trousers for men only, yeah. let's say. Let's 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 yeah. just keep it as simple as yeah. possible. Totally. When do you think it stops being um, when do you think it stops having the potential of providing any growth opportunities? For those five employees, the f- the five employees are like talking to the boss now, and they're like, "Hey, man, you know we're a bit bored doing this shit every day, you know, and we kind of like like to have a little bit more of a, you know, a, a challenge." How does that company make adjustments to its business model, its culture, or whatsoever? What elements does it tackle mm-hmm. to make a small start towards a more creative approach, a more um, growth orientated approach you think yeah so I think that the first thing there's a couple things that popped into mind immediately mm-hmm. the first one is in a realistic situation mm-hmm. these five tailors these five employees are all going to be at different levels And they're all going to have different specializations, right? Mm -hmm. So the first thing that the shop can do is try to rotate somewhat in a way that Mm -hmm. doesn't completely uh, collapse the productivity of the shop, right? Yeah. Rotate the employees so that they all become proficient Mm -hmm. in all the steps, right? So that's the first thing. Everyone needs to become proficient at all the steps. At the same time, of course, you're specialized in one thing. You're going to be the one that's, so that's the second thing. Mm -hmm. You're teaching each other. Mm -hmm. So teaching, teaching the ability to teach someone what Mm -hmm. comes naturally to you is another skill. Yeah. Like not all makers are teachers, right? So that's another skill that, Mm -hmm. that, that requires creativity. Um, sure. Not everyone has a natural talent for it. And maybe you're like, you know, you know, I'm going to teach you, like, I'm going to send you to the, to the like jacket maker for the day. But like, you know, we all know how he is. He's a little bit like this. You might just have to learn from him by observing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
because some people just are naturally not really, but you know what, being forced to teach someone, it expands, you know, I think mm -hmm. it expands people's abilities. Um, you can, you can learn things about the way you've been doing things for 10 years, just mm -hmm. by all of a sudden having to teach someone and being like, shit, like I never really thought of it in this way or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, maybe actually I kind of want to try it in a different way because now that I'm saying it out loud, it seems like I'm kind of, maybe this isn't the most efficient way. Right. Okay. So anyways, mm -hmm. I think that teaching is another way of, um, of creating growth within mm -hmm. employees and within the company. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that on Savile Row, sometimes teaching becomes a little bit pretentious to use the okay. big P word. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I think that people need to be careful. I think that a lot of times employees that are put in a position of having to teach, um, a lot of stuff goes straight to their head. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that uh, becoming a teacher who keeps things humble, especially in tailoring, because I don't care how many people you've trained we are all still learning, okay? And you just, you can't say that you know better than the other guy because, you know, you've both got 30 years of experience and there's just no way to say that who knows it better. It's just completely just an irrelevant conversation. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing that popped into my head is, let's say that this shop has been running for 10 years. I don't even think it would take yeah. 10 years for everyone in the shop to become proficient in everyone mm -hmm. else's specialization. Right. Mm -hmm. I would say maybe even five years. Okay. Mm -hmm. Two other things happen or there are two other possibilities. One is new blood. Okay. Right. Always new blood. Um, and on the other side of it, always outgrowing. I think that it's beautiful when an employee outgrows, uh, outgrows a company, go mm -hmm. to grow, go grow somewhere else, please mm -hmm. go grow somewhere else so that we can bring some new blood in and we will now have like a new pawn in the mm -hmm. game and we're going to keep growing. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, one of my dreams is to run a shop where, you know, my goal is, to allow, you know, and I want to do it specifically with, with women to empower women to be part of the tailoring industry, um, immigrant women specifically, um, who have so much skill that goes like, so just so unvalued. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's people in other countries that, uh, talk about reining them in like on a daily basis, you know, you can only do this. This is all you're allowed to do. Mm -hmm. Come on, you know, um, so much talent out there. I want them to be able to, I would take pride in my mass, you know, my jacket maker leaving and starting their own company, you know, mm -hmm. like start mm -hmm. your own tailoring company. Cause that would make me feel like that's like the most, I would be so proud, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I do believe that there's room for all of us. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the bespoke tailoring industry is a big enough industry. Mm -hmm. um, there's just not enough people who want to like at this level who want to provide jacket, you know, mm -hmm. uh, product at this level for us to really, I mean, sure, we're in competition because these jacket costs thousands of dollars, right? So like, mm -hmm. if you lose one, you might not make your rent. But, you know, you also just have to, you have to, you have to buckle down and mm -hmm. network. And that's the whole other side of, of, of a tailor shop, right? Clientele, mm -hmm. the client management, all of that. Um, that being said, rotation of new blood, old blood, send the old blood to start something else, do something else, be creative in, you know, in a way that maybe can bounce back and be productive to you at some point, right? Who knows? Maybe mm -hmm. they start, maybe they open a factory where, mm -hmm. uh, that can make, um, you know, that can manufacture, um, 
canvases on a higher level than you can just mm -hmm. purchase off the internet, right? So mm -hmm. you don't know if someone leaves your shop and goes to be an entrepreneur and start something new. I mean, don't be scared of that person. They're not your competition. You know, mm -hmm. if you've, if you've provided uh, an environment where, where you want them to grow, you've said, I want you to grow. I want you to become independent. I want you to be as creative as you want to be. Mm -hmm. They're going to, they're going to love you for that. They're going to mm -hmm. come back. If you're an asshole, they're going to want to go out and be your competition. You know, yeah. like if you held them back, right. They're mm -hmm. going to be like, you know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to go start my own shop and I'm going to steal all their clients. Right. <laughs> of course, of course they're going to do that. Cause you were an asshole and you kept them back. You reined them in. No mm -hmm. one wants to be reined in, you know, so they're going to teach you a lesson. Um, yeah, you should be scared if that's the kind of, you know, teacher that you were or mentor that you were or, you know, shop that you that you that you ran. Um, but I think that our generation's above that, you know. Mm. So the last thing is multiple shops. Multiple shops. So that's my last point is like rotate through shops. I cannot tell you like, oh, like how do they do it, you know, over there? Oh, I'm, I mean, even just Italy to England, mm -hmm. you know, like how do they make, I'm going to go down to Naples now. I'm going to network with Neapolitan tailors. I'm, I have meetings set up. I want to know you how say they multiple make shops, their jackets. Do you mean that the same brand should have multiple shops or you just go to multiple shops? industry just the industry the local industry mm -hmm. so i mean savile row obviously right someone or yeah. even someone who's in italy and goes to savile row for a couple of years right 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 will right, come right. back will come mm -hmm, back mm -hmm. and provide for mm -hmm. that for the shop the old shop if you come back right if you come back mm -hmm. if you end up making a round yeah but even if they don't come back you get someone who has that experience Mm -hmm. in on Savile Row in Rome and all mm -hmm. of a sudden what you can provide is is a a British style you know tuxedo yeah which is which is like maybe you know your father who was the one that taught you made like one tuxedo in his life because Italians don't buy tuxedos right or like mm -hmm. clients don't come to Rome for tuxedos they go to England for tuxedos you know what I mean um mm -hmm. Now you're going to have someone working in your shop that has that experience um, because they've made the rounds. So it's mm -hmm. going to benefit the company ultimately, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the idea and I get I think now from... That... Yeah. Go ahead. So, so the no, idea I was going to say... <laughs> Sorry. No, I you was go. just going to say that the more... Um, I think that what's holding shops back right now is... Mm -hmm is a bit of fear, fear of competition, um, which of course, I mean, it's legitimate. If you lose a client, it's a big deal. Um, even if you lose a, a sale, you know, it can, it can be hard to just pay your employees, right? Because someone decided mm -hmm. to make, to order one jacket instead of five, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. so I get it. I get it. Um, but I do think that we need to trust, um, Trust creativity, trust growth, trust lifting each other up and mm -hmm. trust the fact that that's going to come back and benefit us in the long run. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the, this, you know, um, the sketch that we have made so far in my mind, based on what you're saying, looks something like this. Um, even if you have the most basic tailoring shop, five employees, they only make, you know, jacket and trousers. They have like five clients a month. Uh, best thing to start is to make sure that, first of all, the routines that everyone goes through changes in a way that they still, they, they still know what to do and how to do it, but it's not as repetitive as to make their brains dead, right? So that's, it starts with, yeah. with the rotation concept, what you said. And then that rotation concept is going to make people interact within a company more together, exchange knowledge. It, it creates a, a, a culture in which people 
think more about how they interact together, new ideas form, uh, form. And then what, you, what you'll get after that is you also answer the question of, well, what do you do if people want to leave? You say, well, let them leave because if they do leave, first of all, if you're really good with doing what you're doing, they're not going to leave. They, they're going to love the company and they're going to stay. But if they do leave, yeah. um, they're going to set up something on their own. It may be a copy of what you've been doing, but probably not because there's someone else. And that's going to, if you get that on multiple levels, that's going to expand the industry and the market, right? So market yes. expansion creates new weird things. You know, it, it just attracts people from all different you know, levels from, of society into tailoring. Mm-hmm. Then if you then have, I, I guess that inevitably cl- creates clusters of, of shops, like you say, multiple shops like Savile Row yeah. or like Italy, you know, um, and that again allows people from within the industry to change shops even if they don't want to start out on their own, they could still go to a different shop. And, yeah. and so I think the essence of what you say is, is a focus on expansion of industry because inevitably a bigger market will allow you to experiment with more things with your brand. Also on the clients thing, I think it's a good thing if, if companies lose clients. I think that's, the, that's one of the best measures that you can have you know, from, from the real world of do you still deserve this client? No, sorry, they left. Really, why? Yeah. Uh, appar- apparently, someone else did it better than you. And then it's the, you know, the question of what did we do wrong uh, kind of thing. Yeah. Or why aren't we growing in a way that yeah. provides something new and new and interesting to the client who's been our client for 10 years, right? And now he wants something new and interesting, so he's going to mm-hmm. go to the other guy. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, new yeah. And interesting. But if we can learn how to create new and interesting for our clients, mm-hmm. you know, also, I mean, what I love about Savile Row is that every shop has their, you know, their trademark style, the thing that they are exceptional at, the thing that they're known for. And mm-hmm. a client that wants a diverse wardrobe is going to have a suit from every single shop. Right. Yeah. So that client is going to be client to everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Which means we all have to work together because this guy Mm -hmm. is client is everyone's client. Right. Yes. Um, And also, look, if my team's not good enough at making a tuxedo, I want to have a shop that I know is tried and true that can Mm -hmm. make a tuxedo, especially when it comes to to women's wear. Right. Mm-hmm. Because there are not that many shops that can su- successfully do women's wear, right? So for me, what I'm looking for in my networking process is places that I can recommend my clients to go to, to do work that I can't do as well as they can do. Because mm-hmm. if I recommend my client to go to them saying, look, go to them, they're going to give you exactly what you want. There is a trust that is formed, okay? If you do it correctly, if you don't throw yourself under the bus, obviously, you know, mm-hmm. you say, look, I specialize in this. Come mm-hmm. back to me for this, right? Yeah. Um, meanwhile, the shop grows. And eventually, I want to be able to make that tuxedo too, right? Yeah. But 